The biggest difference between now and eight or nine years from now is less like the amount of new uses for this than just the prevalence of a lot of these uses that are already out there as we speak. Hi, I'm Julia Halperin, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This week, we're hopping into a time machine and traveling to the not-so-distant future to answer this question. How will the technological tools being developed today shape the art world of tomorrow? It's a question we delve into in the fall 2021 edition of the Artnet Intelligence Report, which is out now. The theme of the issue is the Roaring 2020s, and inside, we introduce you to the collectors who are looking to shift the axes of power in the art world, the galleries that will serve as social hubs once we get back out and about, and, as we'll discuss today, the tech that will transform the business. To get the lowdown on what tools will define the next decade of the trade, we spoke with Artnet News art business editor Tim Schneider, who wrote a feature on the subject for the report. If you like what you hear and want to read the full report, go to news.artnet.com slash market slash the intelligence report. It's available exclusively to Artnet News Pro members. So if you aren't already a member, you can subscribe at news.artnet.com slash subscribe. Now let's start predicting the future. Thanks for coming back on The Art Angle, Tim. Oh, Julia Halpern. Happy to be back. So I want to start by having you describe for me what you think an opening at an art fair might look like in 2029. Okay, so here's a vision of what this could look like. So imagine you're at an art fair, and just to amp this up, let's say it's the future version of a newer fair that kind of reflects the geographical tilt of the art world towards cities and regions that haven't had as big a presence in the conversation up to now. So the example I use in the intelligence report is the ArtX Lagos Fair. So... Picture this. You're a VIP because, Julia, that's how I think of you. You oh. are a VIP in well, my life. Well, thank you. So, <laughs> so you walk in the VIP entrance, and you actually don't even need credentials anymore because a camera with facial recognition technology just recognizes who you are, pushes you through the doors, and at the same time sends an alert to the dealers who have you on their VIP list to let them know that you're in the building. So they're on the lookout for you and what you want. Horrifying. Okay. <laughs> no, just wait. So then you walk into the exhibition hall. You'd say you grab a champagne flute from the autonomous roving bar cart that's perusing the aisles. And you turn to your left and you see the Gagosian booth. And there is a full sized hologram of Larry Gagosian, and yes, he is still alive, kicking, and selling in 2029. You've got a full-body interactive hologram of Larry making a presentation to a group of in-the-flesh VIPs in the booth, and he's just pointing things out in the works that are hanging on the wall, just like he's actually there in the room with them. There's no lag, there's no glitches, it's eerily accurate and eerily lively. You're around the next corner, you see a painting that really strikes you, but you don't recognize who the artist is, so you just pull out your smartphone, you take a photo of it, and you run it through an app that, in a matter of seconds, gives you back who the artist is, what the title and date of the piece is, if it's been on the market before, 
the entire provenance history. If it's been at auction, you can get the auction price history. And all this is just being delivered to you almost instantaneously with nothing more than the smartphone that you already have and the right app installed. So then you, however many minutes or hours later, depending on your tolerance and your deadlines, you finish up with all the booths that you want to see in the fair, you're exiting the building to walk back to your hotel, and you just reach up and you press a little button on the augmented reality glasses that you're wearing. And on your stroll back to your room, you get to cycle through, let's say, three separate programs of augmented reality artworks that have been programmed into different locations in the city. You have one that's officially licensed by the fair. You have another one that is created by dealers and artists who couldn't get into this particular fair. And you have another one that is just a completely independent project by a group of, let's say, Nigerian independent artists. And you're sort of able to see these things and to some extent interact with them just as you're perusing the streets of Lagos next to other flesh and blood people. You get back to your hotel and you pass out because you are exhausted with all of the innovative technology that you've just been subjected to. I'm exhausted. Life in 2029 sounds exhausting. Yeah, I would like to tell you that it gets better, but in a lot of ways it just gets worse. So on a scale of 1 to 10, like how likely is this scenario that you've just laid out? Well, to have everything that I just discussed, I think it's all achievable. I think it's probably from that point, let's say a seven and a half. But I think that what's really surprising about a lot of this is a lot of the technologies I mentioned are already in use to some extent. And so it's less about having to engineer these things from scratch than it is just having these technologies receive wider adoption in the industry. Yeah, so let's get into that. You identify in your story in the intelligence report five technologies that you say have the potential to change the way the industry functions over the next decade and that figure into this utopian or dystopian vision that you've just laid out. So what are those five technologies? So the five technologies are augmented reality, machine learning, interactive holography, which is just a fun phrase to say, NFTs, and digital self-determination. So we're going to get into that last one, which to me is the most befuddling. But let's start with one that listeners might already be familiar with, and that is augmented reality. So how is that used in the trade right now? As of this moment, it's already being used in a few different cases that a lot of people listening probably are familiar with to one extent or another. So one example is that online sellers and some cases offline art fairs that have online viewing rooms have implemented augmented reality to allow potential buyers to, say, take a photo of their actual living space and get an image sized correctly and accurately depicting an artwork so that you can get a sense of what it would look like if it was actually hanging on this wall in your house or in your office or whatever it is. So it's just a means of allowing you to get a better sense of what the reality would be instead of just like looking at a digital image and trying to size it to what you have in front of you in a different reality. 
Another one is that there is an increasing number of museums that have been rolling out augmented reality features to their visitors. And in most cases, there are features that can be accessed just by the smartphone that's already in their pocket. So as an example, imagine that you're looking at a weathered ancient sculpture and you hold up your smartphone and through augmented reality, the museum can effectively overlay the original paint job on top of the kind of weathered version of the sculpture that exists in 2021 so that you get a sense of what it looked like at the time. And this isn't just like, oh, it's popping up a single still image. You're instead able to see this effectively three-dimensional presentation that's dynamic, like as you move around the entire sculpture. So that changes, I think, the relationship that's people have to what it is that they're seeing in a museum can kind of make the art history or the history come alive in a way that that they're not used to. And then the last thing that I'll mention is what I brought up in that opening vision of a future art fair, which is that artists and dealers have been already producing these projects or individual artworks where you can just be walking around out in the world in specific places, and you can have these encounters with artworks that only exist in augmented reality. And this throws it back to the kind of original use that augmented reality had in pop cultural consciousness, which was Pokemon Go, where people could actually just wander out into the world and like find Pokemon characters that they could only see through their smartphone screens. So this is just like the contemporary art version of that. So those are all like pretty cool and make me feel good about living in 2021. How could augmented reality be used in the future in ways that we might not imagine today? When I went out and talked to people for this story, I was a little surprised at how pragmatic the uses of AR that they were telling me to think about actually ended up being. For instance, one of the ones that came up, there's like a very behind the scenes element of the art world, which is really important, is that you can now through AR, have artists who can direct on-site installations of their work without having to physically be in a gallery or in a museum to do it. If you have AR technology, you can effectively have an image of the person pointing out exactly where pieces should go or how to operate a certain mechanism or piece of technology that's involved in the actual production of that artwork. And that carries over to, to just being able to like make repairs on things that might be broken. I mean, say you have an artwork that runs through a projector and something goes wrong, and normally you would need somebody who's a specialist to come in and actually play around with that technology in the flesh to be able to fix it. Whereas here, like augmented reality could be a way for people who are generally handy, generally knowledgeable, but don't have specific knowledge in a technology to be directed offsite effectively by the people who do. One of the people that I talked to about this was Hannes Koch, who is one of the founders of random international of rain room fame. And what he told me is that this is just way better than trying to gesticulate wildly on a Zoom call, which 
I think by this point in history, most people listening can relate to that on a very personal level. I know I can. Okay, so let's move on to technology number two, machine learning. First, tell me, what is machine learning? So machine learning and artificial intelligence both rely on an underlying technology called the neural network, which is basically just a fancy way of saying that it's a configuration of algorithms that are loosely modeled on the human brain, where you have these multiple layers of quote-unquote processing nodes that can make progressively finer and finer distinctions in a data set. And so machine learning is just the process in which neural networks search large amounts of data looking for patterns without any kind of explicit direction from humans on how they accomplish that task. So the learning aspect refers to the fact that neural networks are continuously refining their conclusions about like what matters in this data set as they're exposed to more and more data. So how is machine learning being used now in the art industry and how might it be used in this imagined late 2020s future? This is another situation where I think that the biggest difference between now and eight or nine years from now is less like the amount of new uses for this than just the prevalence of a lot of these uses that are already out there as we speak. So for instance, that notion of having an app on your phone that can identify an artwork through a picture, there are multiple apps out there that already do that thing. They have varying degrees of success, varying degrees of even public availability, but they are out there. There's also logistics and shipping companies that can use machine learning to speed up the quote process. As somebody who used to be a registrar at a gallery back in the mid-2000s, I can speak from firsthand experience when I say that the process of just saying, hey... I've got this painting that I need to have crated and shipped to this penthouse in New York. How much is that going to cost me to do? It's something that can take like two or three weeks sometimes if you're trying to source enough estimates from enough people. And like when you say it, like you laugh when I say it because it seems ridiculous. But in a lot of cases, that's kind of how it's been because you're, you're dealing with people who have to kind of make offline calculations about all this stuff, yada, yada, yada. The point is that there is at least one company out there called Arta, which just delivers almost instantaneous quotes by using machine learning about past shipping prices and the current conditions of what you need to be able to just outsource all of this to machine learning and give you results much, much faster. The last thing that I'll mention is that there are apps that can process images of artworks and immediately visually cross-reference them with databases of lost or stolen artworks to try to crack down on illicit activity in the art trade. And so again, this is, this is a case where you're basically saying it's not that humans couldn't do this. It's just that they can do it a lot less efficiently than a well-constructed set of algorithms. So you've described, you know, machine learning as being able to transform art shipping by developing quotes much faster than any human could 
and potentially being able to identify looted art or identify other information about artworks just from taking a photo with your phone. In the future, are we imagining that those technologies are just going to be more widespread or are we going to see different uses of machine learning? We'll definitely see some different uses too. So it's not a either or, it's definitely a both and situation where I think that you will see more and more companies rolling out their own versions of these things, and some of them will be more effective than others. At the same time, you will also have a whole set of of other uses that I'm sure people are already working on right now that leverage this technology in ways that we're just not necessarily as familiar with or don't even really know to expect so much. And so let's move on to my favorite of these technologies, because as you say, it is the most fun to say, and that is interactive holography, or as I like to think of it, ghost Larry Gagosian. <laughs> so this one feels the most like science fiction, even though it's happening in the present. So tell us, you know, how is it being used now? And then how could those use cases multiply over the next decade? So the most direct art world link that we currently have is exactly the situation that I described in the opening, which is to say that at this year's Art Basel Hong Kong, the fair partnered with this company called ARHT Media, one of the leaders in this interactive holography field. Their branding on this technology is Presence, which also sounds pretty cool. But what this partnership allowed select dealers to do was to basically beam themselves into a private room in the convention center at Art Basel Hong Kong to hold these 15-minute hologram sessions with as many as 10 VIPs, again, in this private room that has artwork installed on opposing walls. So you have, again, this situation where You've got the dealer in between them and he can actually point to the wall and say like, yeah, you know, that the way that that brush stroke makes that huge arc there, that represents this. Or insert your own conception of how much BS a dealer is going to to throw out in a given moment <laughs> into that scenario. Um, but like that was a real thing that was happening. And there's no reason that it wouldn't be able to proliferate much more in the future. And there are other uses on top of that that we can get into. But like, that's the one that people are, as wild as it sounds already, one that people have already experienced. And so that was, you know, in part done because of really practical challenges that people didn't want to travel to Hong Kong and have to quarantine for two weeks in order to go to a four-day art fair. In the future, when we don't have maybe those kinds of really stringent travel restrictions, but maybe our approach to travel has changed, you know, how could this be used? So you're right, I think, in nodding towards the idea that we're just thinking about travel differently now than we used to. And that's, I think, partly because of the pandemic, partly because of other reasons. But it brings up this idea of like, how badly do I and in this case, the I is, let's use somebody like Larry Gagosian or David Zorner or whoever, like somebody who is running now a, effectively a corporation that employs a few hundred people maybe and is worth however many hundreds of millions of dollars in sales year to year. You get to this point where you're like, okay, do I physically need to spend the time getting on a plane to go to this fair primarily to meet with a few people for a few minutes? Or is there a better way for me to do this? So this is a way to, to get around that and sort of increase the level of interactivity that you have with 
your most important clients, but also really speed up the efficiency of what you can do and like how many people you can even meet with in a given situation. And you've mentioned that this could be used too by lecturers or by artists. Can you talk about how you could imagine those applications taking place? Yeah, I think that those are both really interesting use cases for this. So just imagine that you're an arts educator. I think it's pretty safe to say that being able to teach something in person is a more in general, it's the type of experience that's going to be able to imprint more information and a better experience on the people in the audience around you. That's fair to say. Yeah. So if you're using interactive holography in this case, you could theoretically have somebody who is not just teaching one class of, say, 100 students or 100 attendees in a lecture hall at a museum. It's not just that you can do that once from afar. It's that you could theoretically have the same lecture being given in the same sized or larger venue in multiple locations around the world simultaneously. So you, Julia Halperin, could be teaching a class on art market economics to inquiring minds at Columbia, Harvard, and Stanford simultaneously through the magic of interactive holography. Wild. The artist case is really interesting too because of the fact that if you're dealing with, say, a performance artist, they don't have to physically be in a space to put on a work that they've previously only really been able to avail people to if everyone's together in the same physical venue again. So just like arts educators could have these kinds of geographically spread out, contemporaneous simulcasts, basically, for large audience, artists could do the same thing. And another interesting wrinkle to this is the fact that you don't even actually have to be doing these types of lectures or performances live because you can record interactive holograms, which means that you could do the lecture once and then license it out and just have it replayed in different lecture halls, however many times, in however many places. And it's always going to feel as lively and real to that audience as it did the first time that you recorded it. And the same thing holds true for artists. So I don't even really need to be alive. Like I could give this lecture one time and then, you know, cash in on it. This lecture is going to be really good. And my grandchildren could cash in on it. Like this can be played long after I'm gone. Yeah, and my favorite part of all of this is that we have already seen this happen in the world of music. Years ago, we had a quote-unquote performance by Tupac, who had been dead for I can't remember how many years at that point, on a live stage at Coachella. And the number of late musical artists who are now either doing individual hologram performances from Beyond the Grave or who are even doing full tours is like only amping up. So this has been done with, aside from Pac, Whitney Houston, Maria Callas, uh, I believe Roy Orbison has appeared on stage from Beyond the Grave. So there's just all of these cases where it's already being done in another art form. There's no reason that in theory, Marina Abramovich couldn't do the central performance of The Artist is Present for your great, great, great grandchildren all through the magic of this technology. 
future really is now. (laughs) (laughs) The next development on your list is NFTs. Can you give me the definition of an NFT within 60 seconds? So an NFT is basically a unique alphanumeric code, meaning it's one-of-a-kind string of letters and numbers that acts as proof of ownership for a specific digital file or physical object that has a unique value. And what separates NFTs from the types of digital certificates of authenticity that you could have bought and sold a generation ago is that they are tracked on a blockchain, which I will also just try to summarize by referring to it as effectively a giant shared spreadsheet maintained by a network of different computers controlled by different people in different places that is super secure and able to track the information going all the way back to the very first entry in whatever it is that you're trying to keep track of. I think you got it. I think we're under 60. Well done. All right. So we know that right now, some of these NFTs are selling at auction and on specialized sites for millions of dollars, quite a bit of money. But I thought that what was really interesting about how you tackled NFTs in this piece is that you posit that the more influential use of NFTs long-term could be to address long-standing structural issues in the art ecosystem. So tell us what you mean by that. Right. So what's interesting about the crypto conversation is that I think everybody would agree with this statement. As far as crypto goes in the popular culture, it's just been so dominated by this idea of big prices for selling stuff. And If you instead go back to the very roots of how the blockchain got started and how cryptocurrency got started and all these other uses, it's really about creating an alternate system of governance. What it's an alternative to is these traditional systems that we all rely on that are run by quote-unquote central authorities, which is a phrase that can mean anything from individuals with power to specific companies or to governments or what have you. And the thing is that all of these systems are fallible in one way or another, whether it's because the information is going to be vulnerable to attack or loss if it's only being kept in one place, or whether it's because it's being mismanaged by the people who have control over it, or worst case scenario, there is outright corruption that happened that is going to disadvantage the people who are subject to that system but not keeping track of it. All of this is just background to say that what crypto really wants to do at bottom is to try to introduce a technological solution to a sociological problem. And the art world is as rife with these kinds of sociological interpersonal problems as any other field. I think that there are a number of ways in which people who are really true believers in crypto would look at where we are with the technology now in its use in the art world and say, yeah, we're not really capitalizing on all of the stuff that this can do that would make an art world based on crypto using NFTs specifically. It could make that type of art world run better for more people than the traditional art world does now. And so that's really the development that we're talking about with NFTs in this piece. And so what specifically would change if we applied crypto and NFTs in the way that these boosters suggest we should? You know, as an artist, for example, or as an art dealer, how would your day-to-day look different? So let's just focus in on one specific example and we can kind of build it out from there. 
one of the big selling points of NFTs for people who are, as you'd say, big boosters of technology is this notion of having embedded resale royalty rights within them. I'm sure most people listening know if you're a traditional artist and you make a painting, you effectively get paid for it once, especially if you're based in the U.S. You make money off the first sale. And then no matter how much value that painting accrues over time or how many times it's resold, you don't see any proceeds from those resales. So if you sell a painting today for $10,000 and you end up seeing half of that because your dealer takes half, you end up with $5,000. If 20 years from now, that painting sells at auction for $2 million, you, the artist, still get zero from that resale. NFTs, in theory, can embed a resale royalty right that operates automatically every time an NFT is resold for the entirety of its existence. So you don't even have to get anybody's approval. You don't need any kind of enforcement from some other authority like, hey, this person actually owes me 5% still and they haven't paid me, so I need to get lawyers involved, whatever. It's just actually hard-coded into the technology that anytime this piece is resold and the money transfers, boom, the artist gets whatever the percentage happens to be. And that all sounds great, and I think it can be great, but what you discover when you start to dig into this is that the standard so-called smart contract that most NFTs traded on the Ethereum blockchain, which is the specific blockchain that most of the NFT market involves, that standard smart contract doesn't actually have a resale royalty embedded into it. And so what controls how much the artist gets paid is whatever the platform decides, and the platform is whichever marketplace it's being sold on. So it's like, theoretically, you could have a contract that says, you know what, the artist gets paid 25% every time this piece gets resold for the rest of time. But right now, you tend not to have that because it's like a super bespoke process. You need to even have an understanding that that's what you need to do, let alone having the technological wherewithal to be able to actually like hard code that particular tweak into your particular NFTs. And where we can go in the future, and this is already starting to happen, is that this type of optionality or customizability can be really made much more accessible so that the true best case scenarios for crypto can become very accessible for somebody who isn't necessarily the world's most advanced hacker, but who believes in the technology and wants to partake in it. So you're saying that as the NFT trade becomes more sophisticated and develops, if I'm an artist who is NFT curious, but not a technical whiz, I might be able to really kind of take charge of my market by designating my resale rights and making sure that that's consistent regardless of where I'm selling. Yeah, exactly. And and there's an interesting case that has emerged even in the time between when the intelligence report came out and today when we're recording this, which is that one of the co-inventors of NFTs, an artist named Kevin McCoy, he and his business partner, Carlos Mendez, just announced that they had produced this software suite called ReadyMade NFT, which is 
designed to do exactly what you're talking about. It's basically a software suite that anybody can license, and it will just effectively make it really easy for anyone who wants to, to designate their own resale royalty, to clarify a lot of the ownership terms around crypto, which is like another thing when you start to dig into the code, like what are you actually buying when you buy NFTs and how is it safeguarded on the other end and all that kind of stuff. And just really kind of clarifying and amplifying, I think, what crypto can do for people. And like it has all these little features in it, like it embeds really easily in WordPress or with sites that are made with Wix. So that's just like one example of the way that this is suddenly taking something that is very complex and bringing it back down to earth in a way that I think makes the potential for crypto much more useful. So let's move on to the last tool that you discuss, which is called digital self-determination. And I know all of those words in that phrase individually, but I had not seen them together before your article. So when they're together, what does that mean? Okay, so digital self-determination is less a single technology than it is a series of technologies and honestly like regulations coming together and allowing users to control every aspect of their relationship to the online world. So this is about more than just preventing platforms like, say, Facebook from being able to sell your data if you don't want them to be able to do that. It's about basically allowing every single person who is involved in any way with the internet, which is increasingly almost everyone, certainly everyone in high-income countries. It's about basically giving everybody the ability to control like what data is even available about them in the first place, who can access it, and under what terms, Like even to the extent that you could, in a very crass, but I think useful example, say like, okay, yeah, Facebook, you can sell my data, but guess what? You have to pay me for it. It's no longer you being able to just harvest this free of charge from your users and go out and charge some other company for access to it. So it's kind of like a weird mashup of GDPR regulations, Patreon, and the close friends list in your Instagram profile. And so in theory, that sounds sort of removed from the art world, but I was surprised to learn that a lot of artists are actually at the forefront of digital self-determination. So tell me what this has to do with the art world and why artists are so ahead of the curve. So digital self-determination, as you can start to, I think, surmise from that very imperfect definition that, that I gave of it, it's not really a concept that the people and platforms who are already very successful with the way the internet is now, those people only have things to lose from digital self-determination becoming a thing. So that means that in order for it to actually make progress, you need people who are to some extent outside the system or who are interested in counteracting the system to really put in the work of creating the technologies or to advocating the types of reforms that would need to be made to the legal code or copyright terms or what have you in order to actually bring this about. And artists, especially the branch of artists that you would refer to as activist artists, have a very strong dog in this fight. They're very much intent on this idea of, well, how can we use 
the specific skills that we have to not just create work that will make people think differently about an issue that we think is important, but also create work that simultaneously has a real practical use in being able to give people the power to kind of walk the walk instead of just talk the talk when it comes to digital rights, privacy, and other issues that are all wrapped up in this. So what are some examples of how artists have done that? One that I think is is really useful, there is a, an artist collective called the Algorithmic Justice League. And they have a project that is available still online. I believe you can just watch the video now if you're interested, but it's called the Drag versus AI Workshop. And what this work is, is effectively a seminar that tells you how you can use makeup, accessories, and found objects to block facial recognition technology, which is sort of a great combination of, well, how do you take something that has a kind of artistic presence, but also has a practical value in pushing back against surveillance capitalism? I love it. Amazing. So look through your crystal ball as you are so adept at doing and tell me which of these tools that we've discussed do you think will be most influential by 2029? So I think if I had to just pick one, I would go with augmented reality. And the reason for that is that I think it has the most use cases. It requires the least familiarity with or like investment in specialized devices. Again, a lot of this stuff is already just being run through your smartphone. And smartphones are only going to get more powerful as time goes on and allow you to do more stuff. And it also just integrates... I think the most cleanly for better or worse with the way that most of us are increasingly living our lives, which is this weird sort of almost pseudo dystopian or utopian existence where your phone ends up being like another appendage. As somebody who was just like walking through a neighborhood that I didn't know super well in New York City and like had a Google Maps app up with recommendations about bars and restaurants to go to over the weekend, I can very clearly imagine an AR situation that like threads in with that very well. Last thing that I think I'll mention about this is that there's also just a lot of ground still to cover. One of the people that I spoke to for this story is Bren Sieco, who is the founder of Qzium, which is a company that basically helps museums cultivate and enhance their digital presence one way or another. And he told me that out of the roughly 55,000 museums in existence worldwide, fewer than a thousand of them have used augmented reality up to now. So that just gives you a sense of even only on the nonprofit side, how much more presence this type of technology could have in a few years. And we know that technological access is not granted equally. So I'm curious who you think is best poised to capitalize on the tools that you've laid out? Well, the knee-jerk answer is to say that it's the players who have the most money. So, for instance, major galleries, auction houses, art fairs, etc. But I don't totally think that that's right. I think that they are in the best position and that they have the most resources, but it's also a classic innovator's dilemma situation where, again, if things are already going really well for you, 
in the market as it exists now, you sort of have less incentive to really dedicate a lot of time and energy and resources into trying to figure out what's next. So I think that there are cases, certainly, where the Goliaths have a big presence, like Google Arts and Culture is everywhere and is legitimately trying to push forward, for better and worse, on a lot of these different technological fronts and making a big impact. But we've also just seen all these cases of people who are upstarts in one way or another who just know the technology really well and who are really invested in it emotionally more so than financially and are just actively looking for ways to make this stuff into something that can either give them an advantage or give people a better experience. And so I think it's really more about dedication in a lot of ways or desire than it is about just having the most money. And so my last question for you, because we've talked about tools that may stand the test of time, but I also want to know what current tech trend or tool do you think will go the way of the iPod and be totally erased by this imagined future in 2029? Nothing goes after my heart quite like asking me to end on a down note. (laughs) We have that in common. (laughs) (laughs) One of the many reasons we get along. Here's what I'll say. I, I don't think that it will be totally erased and die out per se, but I have long been a skeptic of what I will call straight VR. So what I mean by straight virtual reality or straight VR is really the most hardcore understanding of virtual reality in that you are dealing with something that you can only access through a dedicated standalone headset that divorces you completely from the world around you. I mean, we've all seen, I think by this point, Oculus commercials on TV or in pre-roll ads before stuff that we're watching on YouTube. And it's always this situation of like somebody in goggles and earphones with like two paddles in their living room and they're like swatting at tennis balls that they can only see in the headset or whatever. And it it just looks like, frankly, kind of a lonely existence. And I think it plays out that way. So when you factor in the fact that, again, like you need separate technology to do this, and in most cases, that technology is still relatively expensive, you're being asked to constantly choose between the world as it exists around you outside the headset and the world that only exists in the headset. And even just on a practical level, like a lot of people just still have bad experiences from a kind of comfort standpoint. Like people still get nauseous or they have headaches if they're doing virtual reality for too long. So if you add all this stuff together, it just still seems to me more like you can get a lot more value out of augmented reality than you can in that specific branch of virtual reality itself. So again, I've long been a VR skeptic. I'm still a VR skeptic, and I look forward to everybody telling me that I am a moron. And every time a VR project succeeds in the next 10 years, people immediately forwarding it to me and saying, ha, you loser, you got this wrong too. All right. Well, I think you heard it here first. VR is out, AR is in, and look to artists to tell you how to change your face so that you aren't caught by 
facial recognition. I think those are the lessons we learned today. If that's what everybody takes away from this interview, then I have done my job. Thank you so much, Tim. I will see you on Zoom. Always a pleasure, Julia. Thanks. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. And if you have some feedback or maybe a recommendation for a future episode, go ahead and email us at podcasts at artnet.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at artnet.com. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Caroline Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening and see you next week.